welcome to this edition of the Alabama Historical Association's podcast program. I'm your host, Marty Olaf, and I talk with people who conduct interesting research and do interesting things concerning Alabama history. You can find out more about the Alabama Historical Association, a membership organization devoted to Alabama history, by pointing your browser at our website, www.alabamahistory.net. Our guest is Bob Friedman, founder and director of the Birmingham Black Radio Museum and winner of Alabama Historical Association's 2023 Digital History Award for Large Projects. Congratulations, Bob, and welcome. And I appreciate the opportunity, Marty. It's good to talk with you. And it was quite a surprise and an honor to receive the nomination and also the award. Well-deserved. Tell us about the Birmingham Black Radio Museum. Beginning in 1989, I began a stint in what is commonly identified as Black formatted radio here in Birmingham. And I stayed on the air for 22 years with a talk show, but started off the probe, the amount of time I was on the air with a music show called the 1950s Rhythm and Blues Review. I thought I could do such a program. And it was an interesting education in terms of Southern music because my experience in Black music went back to the 50s in New York with a tad in Chicago, but mostly vocal group harmony and not the blues and not Black gospel, which were certainly hallmarks of Birmingham's musical history. And it took me a while on that program to hear my playlist to actually bring on more and more people who could recognize certain artists like Jimmy Reed and Slim Harpo, people like that, rather than some of the esoteric vocal groups that were more prominent in uh, large urban areas. In the process of working at the station as station manager and sales manager, And with a talk show, I ran across people who were involved in black radio in Birmingham uh, going back into the 50s. As I began to explore those stories, they would come into my office, we would sit down, we would do some recordings. I found that the history went back into the 40s and the 30s. It became an amazing story, the emergence of the African-American community in Birmingham in the American cultural mainstream from just being able to be on the air on a Sunday for 15 minutes to sing a gospel song or to represent a church in the 30s. And of course, that tradition carried well into the 70s. In fact, it's alive and well today. But as well, we saw the musical format broaden. We saw with the expansion of not just being on the air on a Sunday, but being on the air seven days a week, the possibility for home economics, sports coverage, children on the air doing recitals, a broader variety of programming. In the South, certainly a little more cautious about talking politics. But eventually to the point where African-Americans could sell airtime. A lot of people have a hard time accepting this in their mind that they were the ones that selling the soap, so to speak, on their very popular music shows, but they could not actually attain the contract for the sale right up until the late 70s, to the point where they could sell and then they could own. And that became the burning issue of the late 70s and up into the current day. So it's a grand history. And I prefer to look at the section of history from the 1930s to the 1980s, when AM radio was still 
king, if you will, and also closer to the community and more accessible to the community than FM was. So that's what the BBRM focuses on. It's a collection at this point of 84 oral histories of broadcasters, political figures, authors, and entertainers, and about a thousand pieces of ephemera associated with the history in terms of photographs and contracts and promotional materials and so forth. Some of the stories are extraordinary, and well, almost all of them are. I'll, I'll brag a little. Fortunately, we made contact, or I should say the state of Alabama made contact with us in the early 2000s. We developed a relationship not only with the Department of Archives and History in Montgomery, but with the Department of Archival Studies, the School of Library and Information Studies at the University of Alabama, Dr. Robert Ryder. And he began to send students, that's the graduate division of the communications department, he began to send them into Birmingham. And at that time, we were located in the Carver Theater. We had a wonderful work area there. And students came into the Black community, did the transcribing work of many, many oral histories, taught me the language of archival studies. I was not trained as an archivist. I was trained as a geologist. And I was more than that, a vocal group, doo-wop singer, bass singer, performer. Archival studies was the furthest thing from my mind. I just was soothed by the subject matter. And those students taught me a great deal about the language and also how to appreciate the importance of the work. In the course of time, we located a wonderful webmaster, Emily Bibb, who curates the Paul R. Jones Art Collection at the University of Alabama. She's been working with me for seven years, developing a wonderful website. People can go to it, The BBRM, T-H-E, B-B-R-M. You started out as an amateur archivist and museum curator without knowing the background, without actually knowing how to do the work. But you created this grand archives, this grand museum collection, and now you're being taught by these graduate students about the professional side of this. How has that affected what you see the role of the BBRM as and what you see the future of the BBRM as? Well, I should say that that transition from not knowing to knowing happened simultaneously because the students would come in, do transcription, we'd have conversations together, we'd have lunch together, they would walk around the African-American community, the 4th Avenue Business District, the Historic District, and so forth, and they would talk about what they were studying. And at the same time, Bob Ryder at, at the University of Alabama would invite me out every couple of semesters to just talk to the students and the staff. I can remember, maybe this is a transitional answer as well. I said to one of the groupings out at Tuscaloosa, I wasn't trained in this. You know, when I listen to other interview shows, and I'm very impressed with the professionalism, but my background was in singing vocal group harmony. I was with a group that won Amateur Night at the Apollo. We recorded cover records of all the Beatles and the Tams. We did shows in Chicago. My love was harmony, particularly the harmony that Black vocal groups produced. I have an extensive collection of 78 RPM records representing that genre. I also performed in shows with some of these groups, uh, Flamingos, just a whole host of different groups. So I had an association with uh, folks. 
I also worked on Harold Washington's mayoral campaigns in Chicago, Dr. Fulani's presidential campaign, the first woman and the first African-American on all 50 states' ballots for president in the general election, did that. That's what brought me to Birmingham. So I had a particularly intimate connection to black communities all around the United States. Here I am talking to these students and faculty and saying, I don't know if I'm asking the right questions. Am I being too persistent about knowing this or that? Are there things that I'm missing? And Bob Ryder was kind enough to say, you know, your background gives you a pass to have real conversations with people in the Black community that ordinarily wouldn't even be conceptualized by other interviewers. Because I interviewed Fred Shuttlesworth, I interviewed James Bevel, I interviewed people from the political realm, mayoral candidates, and all kinds of folks. But they knew who I was. They knew what my background was. So in the course of learning the word provenance and finding aid, I also had something I didn't realize I had in some way, pointed out by other people that, that I had that kind of get out of jail card, you know, <laughs> so to speak. I could ask certain questions. And I had wonderful, just just hilarious interviews with, you know, folks from the Drifters and the Platters. I mean, because I could relate to their history. I knew more about their history than they did. So we were we were talking about individuals. And people can go up on our website and see right away. We're just, we're acting like we're just having a beer somewhere. I'm grateful for the students. I'm grateful for the perspective that we keep what we have developed locally. Maybe backups were associated with Alabama Mosaic and the Department of Archives and History, but we're building an exhibit in the basement of the Carver Theater, which will be the Birmingham Black Radio Museum. And every aspect of that exhibit will teach, will challenge, will include young people who sensuously would not really understand the heyday of AM radio, uh, particularly in Birmingham, or perhaps really its connection to the civil rights movement or to the development of the black middle class and the entrepreneurial class. All of those things, which they benefit from in some ways, we have terrific insight into that grand opening will happen sometime this year. And we are kind of partnered with the Alabama Jazz Hall of Fame, which is in the Carver. And we're building this cultural center, which will focus on jazz, which will have a jazz radio station in the basement, and which will have active exhibit to the history of black radio and its contributions, to the city, the state, and, and beyond. You've really created a thing of greatness here. And it sounds like that the connections that you're making promise to carry this great thing on into the future. I just want to chime in here to say that the whole gist of oral history interviewing is about trust. The narrator has to trust you, the interviewer, in order to open up to you, to let you into their lives, basically, at least the way they see their lives. And so the capacity to gain that trust and the background to gain that trust are truly remarkable get-out-of-jail-free cards. It's a hard thing to do, especially cross-culturally in a time when, and this has been going on for a hundred years, in a time when people are divided by the obvious things like race and culture and stuff like that. And to go across that's a, definitely a remarkable thing to gain that kind of trust. So I truly commend you on that. One of the unique locations for me for about seven or eight years here is 
when I was at WJLD for that length of time, for 22 years, there were many broadcasters on Sunday doing religious programming. I got familiar with them. I had sung Black gospel in New York and Chicago. Uh, what do I mean by that? I mean the Harmonizing Four, the Soul Stars, the Fairfield Four, the Swan Silvertones, just on and on. I collected a lot of that music too. It was a base for many, many years. Here, I was approached by some of the older men, and I was born in 43. I was the youngest of what would become the Pillars of Birmingham, and you can see them on YouTube. Two of them born in 32, one born in 36, and the president, Norman, born in 23, and all of them gospel singers. And we produced two CDs, and we sang it every church, every certainly every black church in Birmingham. We were a cappella in the tradition of the great Jefferson County sound of a cappella. And that also was a pass, if you will, to do even more with folks. You said you had some stories that you could tell us. I remember you talking about Tall Paul. Mm -hmm. Tell us a story about Tall Paul. Tall Paul was born in Birmingham in Titusville and had a very unique early history. His mother was an evangelist and took him around the South evangelizing as a four and five-year-old child. When he finally got back and went through the public school system, he ended up joining the army and going overseas for a couple of years and came back. And Rosedale High School had, at the time in 1958, a program for welcoming back GIs to complete their high school education. And Paul went back to school at the age of 21 to finish the ninth grade. And in his record, which I was able to get, it makes it very clear that he's interested in going into radio. Paul ends up going to Huntsville because Leroy Garrett, who owned a cleaning store in Birmingham, had a real exciting fetish towards radio and was delivering napkins to WVOK, the giant 50,000-watt AM station decided he wanted to have a radio station, and he created WEUP in Huntsville. We Up, that was their morning slogan. You up, we up. What can I tell you? Anyway, Paul helped him by doing a gospel stint and a news stint, and he had an extraordinary relationship with Alabama A&M, one of the first people ever to broadcast uh, HBCU football games in the United States. And he was so powerful that the folks in Birmingham wanted him to come and join the staff at W-E-N-N. -N. He came down in 61. By 63, he was the morning man. And by 63, he was the most popular radio announcer in the city as far as the student movement was concerned. The youngsters who were who had to take over the fight for desegregation and so forth when their parents no longer could do it, they were being fired. He was arrested during that movement. Every single student that I've interviewed from all of the high schools that I've talked with identify Paul. He got the name Tall Paul because he was 6'5", but his name was Paul White. He took over that morning drive show, and he held that morning drive show pretty much his entire radio career through a couple of different changes. I had an opportunity to work with him when he was at WJLD the last four months of his career. When I got here in 89, I wanted to help him build a talk show. As little as I knew of it back then was phenomenal. He was getting tired and he was getting ill, as a matter of fact. So it became my job to protect his legacy. 
because my slogan in the job that I have is very simple. It's collaboration, something I've done all my life to build collective consciousness and work with, with people of like mind, and corroboration. And corroboration, as you well know, is get to the primary source if you can, because there are a lot of stories out there about who did what, and I know what Paul's contribution was. Paul was recently inducted into the Alabama Broadcasters Association Hall of Fame, and that took a while to do. There'll be a lot of focus on the people around him, the students and his contemporaries in radio, who also corroborated his work. He, he passed away in 2001. The last time he had a chance to tell his story, even in a minimal way, was on a radio show in 1999 here that I was just fortunate enough to roll out of bed hit the button on the radio and said, oh, my God, Paul's going to be on and grab my tape recorder. Otherwise, it would have been, you know. So you were able to get that last interview that he was giving over the radio. That's correct. I encourage people to go up on the website on the BBRM.org. You'll see on the first page in a box, view a radio hero. It's in big print. It's a 50-minute survey course, if you will, on the history of black radio and Paul's life from the mid-30s on up. It's not meant to be a polished documentary. There's just a lot of information. And Marty, I hope you will do that before we, we get to meet each other in person in a couple of days. And you can give me your feedback on it. But there's a lot about Paul in there, including from the high school activists and the Miles College activists. And I think you'll appreciate it. It's called A Radio Hero. So besides getting situated again into the Carver and joining forces with the Jazz Museum, what does the future hold for the BBRM? Well, we were invited, and when I say we, I mean Dr. Ryder from University of Alabama, who's been really a, a partner in the whole transcription process, the oral history process, for 13, 14 years now. We published a paper on community-based archiving. And his portion is about the development of the concept and his educating young people who go through his graduate program at UA on how this focus developed within the context of the collection that I was putting together and the needs that I had, obviously, as a neophyte in this whole business. We're going to present at the Radio Preservation Task Force of the Library of Congress at the end of this month. We'll each have about seven and a half minutes. It's a huge event. I've never heard of it before, but it's free to the public. There, there are upwards of 300 people in different rooms presenting over the course of three days. So we'll do our piece. The title is Focus on Black-Centered Radio, Preservation, Discovery, and Presentation. There's several other people. We belong to a civil rights caucus which is headed up by Bala Baptiste in, at Miles College. And there's about 15, 18 of us from around the country that are looking at the role of Black-centered radio in many different ways. And that's the biggest thing coming. And then I do wonderful podcasts like you gave me the opportunity to do. And I'm, I also do live programming with a radio hero at libraries in the city and sometimes at various schools. Really, and most I enjoy is working with young people I've had young people from all across the country doing transcription work and seeing their reactions to the kinds of people I've interviewed and, of course, who need transcribing. 
and they get so excited because they get a real insight into the, their world. Shuttlesworth's secretary, or the woman who has led the movement choir for years, who organized in Gadsden during the 63 days, I had to deal with cattle prods, or the oldest member of the Womack family. Everybody who knows anything about soul remembers Bobby Womack, but there were five brothers known as the Womack brothers. And they recorded together, and Friendly, the oldest member, gave me an unbelievable interview. This is an open invitation to folks who know people who want to become more adept at transcription work, the archival sciences from that perspective. Send them my way, undergrad as well as grad. And we will put your email address into the show notes so people can find it from there. So you've been interviewing people that were more on the ground. There's so many people in the civil rights movement and music and things that are big stars or big names, and they get interviewed a lot or have been interviewed a lot. And you're interviewing people that don't get interviewed a lot and that have stories that haven't been captured until you've gotten to them. Is that correct? Just as a caveat to that, I ask questions that haven't been asked before. So the platter is going to be asked all kinds of questions about the great pretender and only you, but nobody's asking them about Buck Ram and the earliest manifestations of the group. And those are the kind of things where we get into conversations more than I would call them burning questions. I can get excited with another singer about a particular cut that is absolutely remote to most people, but we both know is the best piece of work they did. Those kinds of probes have to do with my background. I'm lucky enough to have had the worldliness of a New York City upbringing that way. I grew up in the late 50s with five bandstands on television. One of them came out of Newark. It was all black kids and black artists. Jocko's Rocket Ship Show. Extraordinary. But that was New York, 1958, 1959. I had no idea how bad it in terms of what segregation actually meant because there was a law in the South. Certainly there was segregation everywhere, but it wasn't the law everywhere. And yet my experience is I've been here longer than anywhere else in my life. You know, I've been here for 36 years. I, I love Birmingham. I love being here. And there's a graciousness, <laughs> remarkably. It's just a different experience. When I first came here, I was worried that they were going to tar and feather me and run me out of town on a rail. I was coming here for political work. Nothing could be further from the truth. Chicago was the bloodiest, most dangerous city I'd ever been in for political work, namely Harold Washington's Merrill campaign. That was just horrible racism. So anyway, is there anything else I can tell you? Is there anything else you want to tell me? I think we've covered everything that I can think of. Once again, I want to thank you for this opportunity, Marty. And I've listened to other podcasts on the website, and I think it's so necessary to continue to give a bird's eye view to historical places in Alabama. People should contact me at the website or at the email address, and we'll give them an update and put them on the mailing list if it's not open. If it is We'll welcome them aboard, and if they're around for the grand opening, we'll invite them. That's wonderful. Now, do people need to make an appointment in order to get the tour, or can they just drop in after the opening? That's a good question. There, there are two ways to kind of understand our collection. The physical collection is at the Civil Rights Institute, 
here in Birmingham. They've given me a room just to store, you know, artifacts and objects. There will be some that will be in a display case, but I'm trying to make it the case that when they come down the steps and make that turn and come into the area, they will be swept into the decades. And there'll be a sign that says, start here. It's not going to be a huge room, but they will work their way around it to questions and answers, to small video vignettes, to being able to leave their remarks and their questions in a little recording booth, uh, to listen to some of their favorite jocks on a gigantic radio that will be on one of the walls. And then, of course, take literature. We'll constantly encourage them to go to the website and, and actually read the transcriptions of the subjects that we've met in our collection. We have the total audio of all of those interviews, but we've only put up two or three minutes of it to hopefully encourage people to read the transcriptions. That's it in a nutshell. Hopefully we'll organize it so we may, we may have docents initially. I may be the docent. <laughs> I don't know. I've never done this before, Marty. Never built a museum. Let yeah. me say that our guest has been Bob Friedman, founder and director of the Birmingham Black Radio Museum and winner of the Alabama Historical Association's 2023 Digital History Award for Large Projects. Again, Bob, thank you so much for being with us today, and congratulations again on this award. Well-deserved. Thank you, Marty, and thank, thank the Alabama History Association for their kindness. I appreciate that. Thank you for joining us today. This has been another edition of the Alabama Historical Association podcast program. Our music is the traditional tune, Whistle By, performed at City Stages in 1996 by James Bryan and Carl Jones. It's provided courtesy of the Alabama Folklife Association, which you can find on the web at alabamafolklife.org.